Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 184. My name is Ariel Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu King, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study your words and to soak in your spirit and to just rejoice and celebrate Yeshua, our Messiah. Bless you, Father, for your faithfulness, even when we're unfaithful and we're lazy and don't do the diligent work of pressing in. You are faithful to meet us and to to urge us on and to compel us and to give us that that um, sometimes that extra push that we needed because maybe we're having a bad week or maybe we're just. Uh, a little down in the uh, in the weather or whatever under the weather but thank you lord that um you are a faithful god you're a father who listens to our prayers and you um send your spirit into our hearts to help us to rejoice give us lord that 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 extra push that we need sometimes help us to continue to um find um our joy in you and we'll be careful lord to give the praise and the glory of Hashem yeshua amen just want to thank everyone once again for joining me for these live internet studies. My name is Ariel Lyman Hanavi, bringing you these live studies week after week. Sometimes we miss a week, and uh, sometimes um, we go two weeks in a row missing, but this time we just missed a week. So if you need to play catch-up, go back and listen to episode number 183 for the um, Matthew study as well as the Shema study, and that way you can kind of pick up where we're, where we're going to pick up now. Where you, that way you're not following behind. But... Follow along with me. Let's just jump right into our Matthew study. I have always uh, been reading the Matthew 9, 14 through 17 verses first. So let's start there again, get the context of the discussion. And then we're jumping into a new section tonight. Um, we're, we're finally done looking at all the Christian pastors like Pastor John MacArthur, Pastor John Piper, gotquestions.org, um, and some of those others, Pastor David uh, Guzik. We're done looking at those. We're now going to begin to shift towards um, a different perspective, not the historic standard Christian view on this passage. We're going to start looking now at the um, kind of the messianic perspective, if you want to call it that, Hebraic roots perspective. Um, but let's read the passage first. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. This is ESV. Jesus starts, or Matthew starts by saying that, Then the disciples of John came to him, speaking of Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That's verse 14. And as you know, um, the part of the parable that deals with fasting, I didn't even really focus on heavily. There is some in my commentary, which is available on my website at um, uh, tatesaytor.com, the Matthew commentary itself. But um, mostly I'm focusing on the part of the parable that talks about the unshrunk cloth, the old garment, the old wine and the new wine skins and things like that. That's the meat of my commentary. This is a discussion about replacement theology and supersessionism. Have has Judaism replaced Christianity or are they incompatible with one another? Did Jesus bring something so radically new to Judaism that it required the um displacing of the Jewish worldview, the the removal or disposal of Judaism as a way of life in order to usher in this new way of thinking and living known as the New Covenant, New Commandments, Law of Christ, etc., etc. That's the um, point of having this discussion. So, reading this passage, starting at verse 15, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn 
as long as the bridegroom is with them. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Again, if you read through standard common Christian commentaries on this passage, some are going to put all three of these together and say that Jesus is basically teaching the same principle, just using three different anecdotal devices, like stories or parables, um, to deliver his, his thoughts. Others are going to say no. Actually, they're they're not they're not connected. At least the first one and the and the last two. Um, I I'm not hard and fast on my decision one way or the other. Um, so um, feel free to uh, to comment uh, either way. Verse uh, 16. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst. The wine is spilled. The wines are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. End quote. So, as you can see, these are details of kind of just real-life events. Jesus isn't making up some uh, imaginary parable or something like that. He isn't weaving a, a, a fictional story and in, inserting his own um, spiritual um, meaning to it. These are kind of all everyday activities or circumstances that anyone back in the first century would have easily related to right uh, weddings and, and 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 drinking or eating um you know patching clothing uh and putting wine into wineskins of course fast forward to today's modern society right 21st century and most of us don't really relate maybe we don't really usually relate uh to either any of the three you know morning at weddings or rejoicing at weddings. Well, we rejoice at weddings, but mourning at weddings, right? Um, things like that. That's odd to us. Um, patching up clothing is also a little kind of outdated now. I mean, these days, if, if clothes start to get holes in them, you either A, keep wearing them because that's fashionable. I mean, heck, sometimes you can buy clothes that already have holes in them, right? I remember going to the store and seeing jeans that already had lots of holes when that was the fashion. Like, good grief. Are you are you paying top dollar for this to have the holes already there? But typically, if if my whole clothes end up with too many holes, instead of patching them and worrying about the idea of the patch and the cloth shrinking away from one another, um, I simply just go buy new clothes, right? That's what most people do. Just go throw, toss the old ones or give them to the Goodwill and buy some new ones. All right. And then likewise with wine and wineskins, that's not a practice that I'm aware of anyone that does these days. Perhaps they do in those countries where wine is the big industry, you know, maybe like in Italy or France or something. Like that. Maybe they, maybe the winemakers do use wineskins, but most practices, I know wine goes into some type of a barrel or some type of a, a, of a man-made container or natural container, you know, a styrofoam container or something. I don't know. But, um... Or you just buy it in the bottle and, you know, you don't even worry about wineskins and things like that. So, But for Yeshua's day, there were obviously some meanings tied to this. And so let's, we, we talked in my, my commentary, let me just switch to that page now. We talked in my commentary about the differences of opinion on, uh, or maybe let me start with the shared opinions about the parables, about the old wine and the new wine and the patch the, and the, the old garment and the idea that, from these pastors and these Christian commentators, a, um, an interpretation is brought forth, commonly brought forth. It really is the majority position and the standard um, uh, interpretation that Jesus was bringing a form of religious 
uh, service to God or belief in God or a, a worldview that was so radically different from the Jewish worldview that it required the displacing of the Jewish worldview and, the, and its old system. So in a word, we end up with Judaism is out and Christianity is in, or we could say the people of Israel known as the people of Israel, the people of God known as Israel are being replaced by the people of God known as the Gentile Christians or the church. We could also add to that the idea that the Old Testament is being replaced by the New Testament or the law of Moses is being replaced by the law of God. Um, you know, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. Those are the um, sentiments that are brought into this discussion about um, the old man and the, or the old wine and the, and the new wine, new wine skins, the uh, the patch and the old garment and the new patch and the old garment and all of those things. So that's where we're going. Go back and read those parts of my commentary if you're unsure of what I was referring to. Let's jump now into a new section called, and you can see it on my screen here, the old man, the new man, and Messianic Judaism. And the challenge I've been putting forth is that is it necessary for Jesus to discard the Jewish worldview in favor of bringing this radical new worldview uh, of new covenant? Or can we retain the Jewish perspective, like the, the people of Israel and the law of Moses and Judaism as a religion? Can we retain those elements and yet infuse them with messianic significance, right? A renewal of the heart, a renewed mind, a born-again experience, but the same person. And so I've been using the analogy of throwing the baby out with the bathwater in order to bring about Jesus' desired result, right, of his radical teaching. And it is true, he was very radical in his day, but is it necessary to discard all of Judaism in favor of Christianity? Is Judaism, or was the first century Judaism, was it incompatible, so incompatible with the message of Jesus, of Yeshua, that it that it could not contain or or prop up uh, or support of uh, the message that Jesus was bringing right was the system so corrupt and remember what my perspective is if we're simply talking about the corrupted heart of an individual then yes Yeshua's teaching can't coexist with that corruption and so Jesus is asking for a radical change of heart of mind of will when it comes to serving God in newness of life and being brought out from underneath the condemnation that that is the result of misunderstanding and misapplying and misusing God's laws. So all those religious leaders within purview of Yeshua's conversation need to be challenged to take the born again experience, right? Take that plunge. And but even in that case, we're not talking about throwing out the baby, we're only talking about throwing out the dirty bathwater. We want to keep the baby, right? We want to retain the individual. So that's why we're going to now talk about this idea of old man, new man, and Messianic Judaism. I don't think Yeshua is actually talking about swapping out systems altogether. It's not necessary to replace Judaism with Christianity. We can retain Judaism as long as it becomes reformed and turns into Messianic Judaism. So that a Jew in Yeshua's day goes from being a, a rabbinic Jew or a Pharisaic Jew and gets turned into a Messianic Jew. But the key point... He's still a Jew. He can retain his Jewishness. Let's talk about that. I don't know how far I'll get in this tonight, um, but we'll take a bite out of it. All right, these are my own words. Let's start there. 
Having been raised, this is talking about me, these are my own words, having been raised with a solid Christian background myself, I believe I can understand where these mainline Christian sources, the ones that I quoted above, where they're launching from and just what it is they're attempting to convey in their commentaries. And here it is. Jesus taught that the old man must die in order for the new man to be birthed. And as I say in my commentary, this is not peripheral to the gospel, right? What is it? This is actually central to the gospel message. Understand what I'm saying? The message of Yeshua is radical in the sense that Jesus is calling for the death of self so that Jesus can live within the individual, so that Jesus can um, have preeminence in the heart and the mind of the individual. Yeshua is, in fact, teaching something transformative about people. He wasn't just saying, let's just switch political party lines, or let's just change um, your worldview, but uh, you know, don't change your belief in God or something. Yeshua was actually calling for um, the type of change that resulted in the birth of a new man. And we, of course, have this agreement in Paul, where he talks in the book of Ephesians, about um, the one new man. Um, and so the born-again experience that Yeshua brought in his teachings was not something that was new to the Torah itself. Circumcision of the heart is a feature that was already spoken about way back in the Torah of Moses. God was commanding the people of Israel way back then, circumcise your heart, don't be stiff-necked. I'm asking for you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is um, a, a, a salvific experience that God was even putting in Israel's, uh, within reach of Israel way back then. So, so circumcision of the heart is not something new. Don't make that mistake and think that the new covenant is teaching something that's so brand new that the people just couldn't follow along, they couldn't understand it. It's not a brand new standard, right? Um, the, the, the Torah has always commanded us to genuinely love a God and to serve Him and to uh, be committed to His ways. Yeshua is simply clarifying everything and bringing a context and, and inserting the objectivity of our faith, namely himself, into what Moses actually was giving the people. So Moses taught the gospel, heck, even before Moses wrote, Abraham received the gospel, right? Go back and read Galatians, right? Um, Abraham did receive the gospel. Moses taught the gospel. The prophets taught the gospel. So the gospel itself is not new, but what we have in the New Testament is the progressive revelation of Jesus being the object of God's saving grace, that that sacrifice to end all sacrifices, as it were, that, that atoning um, mechanism that is the fullness, the one that all the others pointed to in the first place, right? Jesus is the type to which the Old Testament is the shadow that pointed towards, right? Think of like the Torah as this giant spotlight that was aimed at Jesus, and if you have a really dark stage, in my analogy of the spotlight, if you really have a really dark stage, then you can actually trace the beam of the spotlight from the from the from the um, uh, spotlight itself from the source, and you can trace it all the way to wherever the spotlight is shining on. This is even more dramatic if you insert introduce like some type of smoke or steam or something into the room right you've seen this you've all gone to like you know parades on ice or the ice capades or something like that and the ice skaters are out there on the skating rink and the the whole arena is dark and there's some kind of like a fog machine that's kind of blowing this uh, dry ice type of uh, effect 
on the um on the skating ring and so it looks all really kind of misty and smoky but really kind of ethereal and 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 really wonderful when they, but they got all these lights and and the the skaters are out there skating around and doing twists and turtle turns and and jumps and things like that but then usually there's some spotlights somewhere in the arena usually above the crowd and they're shining down on the skaters and what happens is if because of the smoke and stuff or the, the dry ice or whatever that effect is that's in the air on the skating rink you can trace the beam of the spotlight and what happens is the spotlight is on the skater but you can actually trace it back up to the source which is the spotlight too what's my analogy saying the torah is like this giant spotlight and there's just enough i'm using air quotes with my fingers there's just enough dry ice or smoke in the room that we can trace the beam over to yeshua yeshua is the focal point of the spotlight and so it was designed that way. Well, what's Yeshua doing? He's highlighting the fact that I am the one that the Torah has been pointing to all along. The prophets have been prophesying about me. Look and read and understand Moses if you want to understand me, right? Um, that's just Yeshua's perspective. All right, so let's read about this gospel. Um, the old man needs to die in order for the new man to be birthed. That's not peripheral. That's not a side issue. That's not like, oh, by the way, if you've got time, it would be nice if you could die. This is actually central to the gospel being the gospel itself. I go on to say it's foundational, right? Uh, it's of great importance, my point. These great men of God that we just read about are unabashedly teaching this central truth. Yes, we can agree, I say, that this indeed is sound biblical exegesis. Equally true is the fact that by the first century, these are my own words, right? By the first century, the religious Jewish leaders had so polluted Hashem's genuine form of Torah obedience that only a skeletal frame of what Moshe actually said barely remained visible for the casual observer to see, right? It's no secret that by the first century, the Jewish authorities, the people who were in charge of actually influencing the people, leading the people, helping the people make um, public decisions as far as communities and things like that, right? So we're talking about scribes and Pharisees and rabbis and proto-rabbis and and priests and and other um, leaders in the community. They had developed um, a worldview and a Jewish system of beliefs, right? Uh, some of it um, denominational, right? So you had some differences of opinions, just like you have denominations today. But generally speaking, there was this idea that um, there was copious amounts of oral traditions and um um maxims and sayings from rabbis and um uh just uh clever ways of spinning the bible uh fences that were erected in order to kind of help to help you make sure you're avoiding um violating certain commandments which in and of themselves are harmless do you guys understand what i mean when i say fences it's like um your father knows that you're supposed to be home by um, midnight, right? For him, in his mind, that's the absolute latest he'll let you come home from the party that you want to go to. But what does he do? He knows that you're prone to drag things out a little bit. So when you ask him, what time do I need to be home, Dad? Instead of saying midnight, he says to you, you need to be home by 1130. Or he might say 1115 or something, depending on how late you typically run. Which means, if he says 1130, he knows you're going to actually come strolling through the door around midnight. Right? You're going to push it a little bit. To you, 
you think, oh, it's just a little, I was only 30 minutes late, dad won't be that too terribly upset. But to your dad, he knows without telling you that actually you actually made it home within the allowable time, and so he's not going to be as harsh on you. He's going to keep telling you 11.30 every time you ask him, but in reality, he knows midnight is the, um, the, the drop-dead time. And so the point here is that this is what's known as a fence, is you build a little bit of extra fudge room for the person who is supposed to become obedient to whatever it is that they're supposed to be doing. And this allows for them to either uh, have excuses, you know, my, the bus was running late, or, you know, I got off that tire or whatever, um, or something like that, or I lost track of time. Um, so the, or uh, uh, you build a fence so that someone doesn't put themselves in danger, right? You have a party on your roof, like could happen in the Middle East, you build a fence around that roof because people might stray too close to the edge and fall off. Well, in Judaism, there were certain commands that if you got too close to them, God would ex God would um, excommunicate you, right? Kick you out of the group. Uh, the, the the punishment known as karet, being cut off from your people, or the death penalty was a was attached to certain violations of Torah commands. So what the rabbis did is to avoid. Um, um, hitting those commands, or right, having a collision with those dangerous commands, they would build fences of protection. That would they would build an extra prohibition, a layer of of protection, as it were, an extra biblical requirement, so that you don't um, accidentally violate the command. Like um, God says, "Hey, I'll, I'll uh, if you if you take my name in vain, um, you'll you won't be guiltless." So what do the rabbis do? They said, well, we don't want to take God's name in vain, so what do we do? Let's just remove it from our conversation altogether. And thus the name of God got lost to antiquity uh, by removing it so that we wouldn't mispronounce it and misuse it and things like that. That's Those are fences, right? That's what I'm trying to uh, say. Didn't mean to take too much time there, but let's keep going. So what I go on to say is, um, I'm sorry, I needed to, the point I was trying to bring up by talking about all the fences is that, unfortunately, if you if you make a fence around a fence, around a fence, around a fence, around a fence. You've got too many fences, too many barriers between the actual commandment and you, the Torah-observant uh, person, then you can actually eventually lose sight of the actual command. You're actually only memorizing and paying attention to the fences. Over time, you don't even really remember what God said. You just remember what your rabbi who spoke in the name of, the, of his rabbi, who spoke in the name of his rabbi, who spoke in the name of his rabbi. That's all you remember. And so you end up with a man's opinion, built on top of a man's opinion, stacked on top of another man's opinion, and you end up forgetting what God's opinion was on the matter. That's what I mean by defenses. And so by the time of Jesus, there were so many um, extra man-made fences and opinions and halakha and, and policies and traditions stacked on top of the Torah that you ended up with a perversion of God's Torah. It was lost to the casual reader uh, or observer or listener or learner and so Jesus came to cut through all that. It's like, you guys, you've nullified the commandment of God by your traditions and all your other opinions and things like that. Not that opinions are wrong and traditions are wrong. In and of themselves, they're harmless. So let's keep reading. I go on to say, by the time Yeshua arrived on the scene, and I, I explain this, the Torah had become all but choked by the traditions of men, the teachings of the sages, and the poison, are we ready for this? Ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism, exclusivism, <laughs> try that one again. Ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism is what I call, what Paul calls the works of law. 
And um, I don't have time to explain all of what that fancy phrase means or works of law. You can you can Google search that term, ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism, or Google phrase covenantal nomism, N-O-M-I-S-M, or works of the law, and look it up uh, in my commentaries, and you'll see what I'm talking about there. Uh, or just um, go take a peek at my uh, exegete Galatians commentary, which is available on my website and on this YouTube channel. All right, I go on to say, see how much time we got. Yeah, we got about seven minutes left, so keep going. What I go on to say is that the average Jew probably didn't even know where to start in his honest endeavor to become Shomer Mitzvot, which is a Hebrew phrase that refers to Torah observant, right? So he's he's fervent for God's will. He wants to do what God asks him to do. He knows it's his duty as an Israelite, as a covenant man, to walk in the covenant ways of God. He wants to be... Um, uh, engaged in covenantal nomism and, and loyalty to the Torah and things like that. But, you know, with all the opinions that were floating around in his day, you know, Rabbi A says this, Rabbi B says that, you know, Rabbi C says that, and, you know, the old Talmudic quip is that where there are at least, where there are two or three Jews, there's at least five or six opinions. So he doesn't even know what to do, right? He, where do I turn? And so, um, there's a lot of confusion that floated around in that day. A lot of factionism going on. A lot of um, uh, denominationalism, if you want to call it that. And I'll, I'll also say, and what about Gentiles seeking to become followers after the God of Israel, right? Where do they fare? How do they fit in? You know, your average Gentile was kind of in a bad place in, in the first century because he was viewed as an outsider to the people of God and or to kind of like a members-only club. Israel considered themselves a kind of a members-only club, Jews only, and Gentiles wanting to approach God, God of Israel, and, and become obedient to God's words, were faced with this hurdle of Jewish-only conversion policies. That's part of the ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism baggage that I mentioned earlier, the whole works of law program that you have to change your ethnic status to become a Jew, and then you have to um, commit yourself to maintenance of Torah commands so that you don't violate your covenant, um, your place in the covenant, your membership, and uh, put yourself in a position where you're forced to be kicked out. Right? Um, so, this is all part of the covenantal nomism package, the whole works of the law, uh, Jewish only, the Torahs for Jews only, all of that um, blindness that existed in, in Paul's, in Jesus and Paul's Judaism of the first century. So, um, we continue. I say, they had little choice, speaking of the Gentiles, they had little choice to rely on the interpretations of the extant Torah teachers and proto-rabbis of the day if they wished to obtain a peek into the scriptures that were micromanaged by Israel. Understand what I mean by that? Um, Israel was the one who was safeguarding the Torah, in many cases guarding it so that Gentiles and pagans couldn't damage it or pervert it or mock it, or, or, or um, um, what do we say, um, uh, uh, dishonor God, you know, per pervert his name, and, you know, um, uh, things like that. So, Jewish people felt that it was their duty to kind of safeguard Torah, to, to preserve it, and to keep it protected from harm, uh, the harm of of the paganism that was rampant in the first century, things like that, you know, the the, the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods and all the paganism and things like that that permeated the first century. So Gentiles were viewed with suspect in many cases. Um, you know, they wanted to keep Torah, but the Jewish people kind of micromanaged 
uh, their abilities to keep Torah. Okay, you can keep this part, but you can't keep this part because that part's for Jews only. Or we'll let you close. You can you can you can look, but you can't touch. Uh, you know you can, you, you, but you know if you break it, you bought it. It was a, it was really kind of a um, a stressful experience for your average Gentile. Uh, you know you want to bring a sacrifice, you got to do it proxy. You can't approach all the way as far as we can go. There's a there's a barrier between uh, us and you. Right? There's our court of the gen. There's a court for Jews. There's a court for the women. There's a court for the Gentiles. Talking about the temple, all of these kind of restrictions that were placed on people who were not deemed worthy to exist in this membership-only club, this kind of class or caste system that was a religious caste system that was um, being um, utilized by many of the Jewish people in the first century. Not all, but many of them. And so, in closing for tonight, we're going to stop here. Just recall that in the case of Yeshua's teachings that were so radical to the ears of religious Jews and Jewish people that were listening and dialoguing and interacting with them today, is it necessary for them to interpret what Yeshua is saying as your worldview is completely corrupt and your way of life as a Jew needs to be replaced with a new way of life that's going to be labeled Christianity sooner or later. Um, your understanding of God's law and the law of Moses is going to need to be uh, discarded and thrown out and replaced by a new law known as the New Testament, New Covenant, or it's going to eventually be called the law of Christ, etc., etc. Um, the people of God known as Israel, uh, you guys are going to eventually be set aside, put on back burner status, or mothballed, or shelved, or whatever analogy you want to fill in the blank there, replaced with a new people known as the Gentile Christians, because they're going to be faithful, they're going to be the people of God that take the gospel and go with it, whereas you people known as Israel, you're the unfaithful stewards, and so God's going to rip the kingdom from you, God's going to rip the um, stewardship and the vineyard from you, you know, you guys recall all the parables that Yeshua... So, is this really the best way to inter in interact with Yeshua's uh, teachings, or instead, as I purport, Yeshua is really teaching a radical transformation of the man, change of the heart, a change in the will and the volition, surrender to Yeshua, surrender to God through Yeshua, and allow His Holy Spirit to take up residency within you so that you can actually take your beliefs about God and about Moses and about who you are as Israel and transform that into what God intended you to be all along, which is um, a Jew both outwardly and inwardly, where Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2 near the very end of the chapter. The Jew is one who's not one who's merely a Jew outwardly and circumcision being of the flesh, and I'm paraphrasing, but a Jew is one who's also inwardly circumcision of the heart whose praise comes not from men but from God. And with that, uh, we'll conclude this section tonight on Judaism v. Christianity. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also... Um, 
invited to head on over to tatesatora.com. That's my own personal tour teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around. And um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Tour Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five-minute video on the topic uh, every day, twice a day sometimes, and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching. And make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at tatesatora.com take a moment to scroll down to the very very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in. It's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it um, of, uh, of um, employment um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet this is the mechanism right here click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity and I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there those of you who are regular givers just absolutely um, so grateful I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time so uh, please do continue to keep giving uh, those of you who are regular givers those of you just give me one-time gifts that's fine as well too I mean uh, God uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others.
Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity and pick up our study where we left off um, two weeks ago. We are talking and working our way through this chart that is actually put together. If I scroll down, you'll see it's a, car, a chart that Karn put together on the Holy Spirit. Actually, the chart originally has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I just shaved off the the two columns that have Father and Son, since this section is really about the Holy Spirit. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? And we're really interacting with the passages. We talked about that the Holy Spirit is called God in the book of Acts. We talked about that the Holy Spirit is identified as the Creator in the book of Job. And we also started talking about how the Holy Spirit is one who raised Yeshua from the dead in Romans chapter 8. I want to talk about quickly um, how the Holy Spirit indwells us in John about how the Holy Spirit is everywhere in the book of Psalms, and um, that the Holy Spirit is all-knowing, right? He's omniscient in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I might even also get to the fact that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us as believers in the book of 1 Peter. And then, uh, so those four, right? Um, uh, yeah, indwells everywhere, all-knowing, and sanctifies. And um, then what I want to do is I want to, if I have time, I want to circle back around again to um, Romans chapter 8, and basically exegete much of that passage because it's a heavy spirit passage utilized by Paul. In fact, I think by count, if I remember, it's one of the more, uh, it's one of the passages, chapters in Paul's writings where he uses the word spirit, pneuma in the Greek, or pneuma, however, if you want to pronounce the P or not, uh, uses this word spirit more often than any other letter or chapter in his writing. So let's first turn, because the other, the other topics aren't that, aren't that difficult to um, interact with. So let's first talk about John 14, 17, where the Spirit indwells us. Let's turn there first. Um, this is the famous passage where Yeshua promises to the disciples that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. Let's read it. Um, John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father, this is where we're going to start, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And then in verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he what? He dwells with you and will be in you. This is one of these triadic discussions where if you are careful to watch the language that's utilized in the New Testament, when it talks about the Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit, you'll not only notice that the language into, uh, um, switches back and forth between who dwells in you, it's God dwelling in you, it's the Spirit of Christ who dwells in you, or is sent into you, like as in Galatians 4, God sends the Spirit of, of His Son into you, crying, Abba, Father. Or, it's the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, so that the question is asked, who is indwelling us? Is it God? Is it the Spirit of God? Is it the Spirit of Messiah? Or is it the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. That's what you're going to find when you read through the New Testament. But something else peculiar that you're going to find is that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father, but also in this passage, it's the Son who asks the Father to send the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is uh, is uh, commissioned by the Father, but sent by the Son, or... Um, um, you know something to that effect. There's 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 this whole um, uh, filioque debate uh, in Catholicism versus uh, Orthodoxy over does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father? Does He proceed from the Son? Does He proceed from the Father and the Son? Is it the Father versus the Son? You know this whole idea of procession, and um, you know because uh, Yeshua 
uses language where he talks about, I'm going to ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit, but then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and things like that, right? If you scroll down a little bit further, um, let me keep reading. Uh, let me find it. Let me find it. Uh, the helper of the Holy Spirit in verse 26, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach all things and bring to you remembrance of all that I've said to you. Um, but earlier in verse uh, 16 and 17, I will ask the Father and he will uh, give you another help to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it's another season. Um, there's language to suggest that Yeshua sins. So the point, is, however, for our discussion tonight is not the filioque debate. Um, procession of father versus son i talked about that in earlier teaching you go back and watch those youtube videos the point tonight is simply that who is indwelling us it is the holy spirit and the way that we interact with trinity in this passage is that there are passages i don't have time to pull them up now but there are passages that again indicate that it's god dwelling in us other passages that it's the spirit of messiah who's in us and, and we'll see this in romans by the way and then there are other passages that talk about that it is the holy spirit and is it the holy spirit of god is it the holy spirit of messiah those are the questions that we begin to ask of course this is the famous paraclete passage if we were to go over to the greek um uh the greek word right here um Parakleton is the root is rooted in the in the word paraclete, which many pastors are fond of letting us know that this is the helper. That's why that's the English translation of paraclete is another helper, the paraclete. And so we know from this passage also that it's not just the Holy Spirit. He's not just an inactive force or a power or a gift that's given. Um, and he's not simply or merely another way of saying the Spirit of God, like many Unitarians are fond of trying to convince me that the Holy Spirit is merely God's very own Spirit, and there's no separate entity or person or being known as the Spirit. Aha! But if the Father is sending the Spirit into us and into our hearts, and the Spirit is going to intercede on our behalf, like we're going to read about in Romans 8 here in a moment, and things like that, this spirit has his own will. The spirit knows what is the mind of God, like we're given in Romans again, Romans chapter 8. Get a lot of mileage out of Romans chapter 8, like I said. Then the spirit is obviously a separate spirit, but yet is one in essence with God. So there, the spirit is, is similar and in many respects is the same because he's very God, he's very deity, but at the same time, we recognize him and, and, and qualify him as a distinct person. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Right? This is a future occurrence. If the Father and the Holy Spirit are simply the same spirit or the same, I'm using air quotes with my fingers, being or person, right? I believe they are the same being, but not the same person. If the Holy Spirit and the Father are simply the same a person or the same entity, the same spirit, then why is this a future promise that Yeshua is giving to them that, that has to wait until Yeshua leaves, right? Until um, Yeshua vacates planet Earth, then the Spirit of sins. Because this would almost suggest that that the Father wasn't present, and yet all throughout the Tanakh, the Father is present. So what's Yeshua talking about? That he's going to send something that's not there, a thing, a presence, a person, a spirit who isn't present now? Right? No good Jew, no good religious Jew of the first century who was worth his salt in, in um, understanding the Tanakh, the, the Old Testament, would suggest that God wasn't present in uh, Israel as a people, that God was not there uh, with the people. So that when Yeshua hit the scene and started talking about the Father, everyone knew he was talking about the Spirit of God who was already there. 
Right? The Spirit is here. He's working miracles and doing things among us. Likewise, Paul would never suggest that the Spirit of God is not present, and yet Yeshua's talking about something future. The Spirit can be sent because He is a person that is sent by God to do God's will and God's bidding. And I get this, this pushback from Unitarian Christians all the time telling me that the Spirit of God is simply, is simply God Himself. And yes, that is the way that the bulk of the Bible talks about the Spirit of God. I grant them that. So, that's the first uh, passage we're going to look at tonight. The second one uh, is that God is, um, or God the Spirit is, He's everywhere. He's everywhere. Let's look at Psalm uh, 139, 7 through 10. Um, the psalmist writes, starting in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I free, flee from your presence? In verse Eight, he says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the eldermost parts of the sea. And then verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So, interestingly enough, the psalmist starts out by addressing God. And he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Poetically speaking, the psalmist is saying, where shall I go from you, O Lord? Where shall I free from your presence? Right? There is the idea in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God represents the presence of God, the mind of God, the power of God, the essence of God, um, the, you know, the, the, the um, in some cases, manifest presence of God, if we talked about the light, if a light shows the truth and things like that. Um, so it's not wrong to affirm that the Spirit of God is very God and that the Spirit represents the presence of God and the power of God to move and motivate and come upon a person. I understand that and I affirm that. The only point I'm trying to add is that extra detail is given to us in the New Testament as far as the fact that the Holy Spirit is actually a separate a person of God who has his own personality and can actually even intercede for, for saints on behalf of us and God. Remember, when we're going to get to this, when we get to Romans chapter 8, in order for intercession to take place, there has to be at least um, uh, three parties, right? Um, you have party A and party B. Intercession is, is the third party, part C. Party C, the person who comes along in between party A and party B and intercedes on behalf, you know, like an advocate, like a lawyer, right? Like your, your district attorney who's interceding on behalf of you and the judge. Otherwise, the judge just pronounces the sentence and there's no due process. The the DA or the attorney, the lawyer, he's the one that's pleading your case, right? trying to show that you're innocent. He's interceding for you. Well, that's what's kind of going on with the Holy Spirit. He intercedes for us. Later on in Romans, to make things a little more complicated, Paul's going to say that Jesus is the one that intercedes for us, right? Well, who is it? Is the Spirit interceding, or is it Jesus interceding? The answer is yes. All right, so but not to jump ahead of myself. So the psalmist says, the Spirit is everywhere. He's omnipresent. Where can the psalmist go where he can flee from the Spirit of God? So obviously the Spirit has the same qualities as God, the same characteristics of, of God. He's fully God, and so he's fully divine. Uh, he's not limited, uh, you know, like the example of electricity. If the Holy Spirit is simply a power that emanates from God, like electricity uh, flows throughout my apartment, well, then unfortunately it's limited because there are some rooms in my apartment that don't have electricity. There's no outlet for me to access it. There's no wiring. And there are some rooms that have it, but not so with God. Everywhere God is, the Spirit is. And everywhere the Spirit is, 
God is, and yet God can localize his spirit so that the spirit of God hovers over the surface of the waters, and at the same time, the reader understands that God is still enthroned in heaven. Understand what I'm saying? God can dispatch his spirit to do his bidding and remain stationary, as it were, where he was when he started, as if God was kind of localized, right, using kind of anthropomorphisms to explain how God can be enthroned in heaven, yet he's omnipresent. Right. Both of those are truth statements, and yet, from our perspective as humans, we sometimes have to um, um, visualize God being localized, right? Uh, concentrating His glory or presence in uh, uh, an earthly address for a brief moment or something like that. All right, and then the um, uh, third passage is that uh, God is all-knowing, right? He's omnipotent. I'm sorry, he's omniscient. He knows everything. This would make sense because the mind of God is, and the mind of the Spirit um, are overlapping or they're synonymous. Or in some cases, the verses, they have separate minds as persons. Um, one will and another will, and they, they agree with one another. But yet, the Holy Spirit is fully God, and he knows everything just like God knows everything. He doesn't lack in knowledge. Um, let's look at this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, starting in verse, it said verse 10, I think, what did the, what did the reference say? Uh, 10 through 11, but I want to actually back up to verse 9. Um, let's read that one there. Paul says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And then he continues in verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, why? For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And then verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? Question mark. So also, using the analogy, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. End quote. This is actually a great proof text for Unitarian Christians to show, aha, just like the example of a human having a spirit, God has a spirit, and no one would suppose that the spirit of a human is a separate person, other or separate and distinct, and can be dispatched from the human. So, too, God's spirit is actually his own spirit. It's not necessary to introduce the idea of a third person known as the Trinity. This is one of these great passages, proof text that's thrown in my face as a Trinitarian Christian by Unitarian Christians or non Trinitarians. They tell me, see, Paul even uses the analogy, just like a person who knows his own thoughts, uh, the spirit of that person, small s for spirit, um, so no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God, and it even says the spirit of God, it doesn't say the Holy Spirit. Paul could have used the phrase, panumatos uh, uh the Greek word for Holy Spirit, uh, but he doesn't. He uses Spirit of God, which, uh, if we pull over the Greek, it's panuma um, theu, uh, so Spirit of God, or the, the God Spirit, or something to that effect. Um, so the point I'm trying to make is that this is one of those uh, cases, one of the verses that can go either way, because Trinitarians affirm that the Spirit of God is God himself, but at the same time, we are trying to emphasize the idea that the Spirit of God is a third person to Trinity. And in this case, the, the point that's being brought up by Karm is that God has all knowledge as God, and thus the Holy Spirit is equally God in nature, in essence, in being, because 
the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he also searches everything and even knows the depths of God. How could he do that if he was a mere um, a lesser form of energy or something that flows off the fingertips of God but is not doesn't have personality or anything like that. So he's fully divine. He's fully equated with God in 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 this regard, in power and in and in, in knowledge. He doesn't lack any understanding. So that's all I'm really trying to be. Again, we could go either way with this verse. Um, it's the Spirit of God who is God, or it's the Holy Spirit who's the third person of the Trinity. Uh, Trinitarians are careful and quick to uh, explain that yes, in terms of being and essence and oneness, the Spirit of God is. God himself. But in terms of persons, personality, having his own separate will, and the ability to to agree with God and intercede with God, intercede for saints on behalf of, uh, intercede with God on behalf of saints and things like that, he is a separate person. All right, and then the final verse that I want to look at tonight, and then leave now room for time to look at uh, Romans 8, is that the Spirit is the one who sanctifies us. Now, again, this is again a triadic discussion because it's not only that the Spirit sanctifies us, it's that the blood of Messiah sanctifies us, it's that the uh, Word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, it's the walk of faith that sanctifies us, It's it's there's a, there are a variety of things that sanctify, and we can have a whole discussion on what level of sanctification we're referring to, but generically speaking, let's read 1 Peter 1-2. Um, where it reads, according, uh, I'm breaking into the context, but forgive me. Um, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, Peter says, for obedience to Jesus Christ, this is another triadic passage or trinity passage where all three persons are mentioned, God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ, right, all three persons are mentioned, and for sprinkling with his blood, speaking of Jesus, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So, Peter brings in all three persons, just like Jesus does in several passages, just like the other writers of the Bible do. They bring in all three persons to help us understand that um, all three are working together for our behalf to bring about the, the um, perfect man of God that God wants us to be. We've got the foreknowledge of God the Father, but it's the sanctification of the Spirit. Peter could have easily written to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Father. I mean, that's perfectly consistent with what we might read elsewhere in the Bible, the Tanakh, or even other parts of the New Testament. God sanctifies us. He sets us apart. He set Israel apart as a people group. He sets us apart as individual believers uh, by um, saving us and bringing us into this relationship with, with him so that we can accomplish work for him, right? That shows up in Romans again. But Peter chose to use the sanctification of the Spirit as if it's a separate person of God that's chosen and dispatched by God to do the sanctification process. And then he adds, for obedience to Jesus Christ, right? Paul could have made, I'm sorry, Peter could have made this a, a, a discussion entirely about God, according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of God the Father for obedience to God the Father. But then if he added in the, for the sprinkling with his blood, it would have gotten really um, weird and spooky. Except for that one place in the New Testament where it does talk about Jesus redeeming us, uh, the, uh, the Father redeeming us with his own blood, right? That gets a real, really challenging for many people. But we're not going to discuss that one tonight. 
this, the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, the immediate antecedent, the immediate um, um, uh, uh, noun that the um, verb sprinkling and the blood, the object there is pointing to is um, uh, precedent is Jesus Christ there, uh, the subject and object. So, um, sanctification of the Spirit is nothing new to the writers of the New Testament. They understood that God set his people apart by the power of the Spirit and by the expectation to walk into the ways of God and demonstrate the will of God here on earth. Uh, or to you, to quote it the way that Jesus said, um, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? When Jesus taught us how to pray the great um, um, the Lord's Prayer. We are to walk out God's will and demonstrate it on earth as it already exists in heaven. And thus, the sanctification of the Spirit is necessary for us to be empowered to walk that will out. God doesn't expect us to do His bidding under our own power. God doesn't expect us... I mean, there's a sense where He does. Meaning, He expects us to agree mentally uh, with what He... Um, teaches is good. It, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, without confusing you, sanctification is a two-part process. It's a, it's a, um, a partnership between the Spirit of God and our own spirit. Right? We have our own will. We have our own volition. God doesn't just program us like robots and and force us to do His will. He compels us. Uh, under, and empowers us by His Spirit. He urges us on by the holiness that is His, right? He commands us, but we surrender our decision-making process into His hands, and thus we conform to His will, right? And that's that transformative process where the mind is renewed by the Word of God, the Spirit of God. Paul talks about in Romans 12 about being renewed um, in your mind so that we can prove what is that good. Let me see if I quote it from KJV. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And he says in verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So this is Paul explaining that we have a part to play. Be not conform to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Who's renewing the mind? Who's sanctifying us? Well, it's God who's doing it by His Spirit, but we are agreeing that what God is doing is good, and we are surrendering that process to God, allowing His Spirit to, to move us and to shape us and to change us and to grow us. So, it's it's there's a fancy um, technical term that shows up in Christian commentaries called monergism, and it's used to describe when God is working alone to do an action. It's made up of two Greek words, mon or mana, which is one or single, and ergos or ergo, which is describing work, mon ergism, right? Moner, monergism, one work or one power or one per person doing the work. Um, by comparison, there's another fancy term that shows up called synergism. And it's made up of two Greek words as well. The first, the prefix is soon or sin, as uh, it's spelled S-Y-N. You can say synergism or you can say synergism, spelled with a U, S-U-N. Both of them work. And and the last part of the word is, is the same as the first one. Ergism or ergos, the root word, um, or erga, relates to working or performing an action. So 
Monergism or monergism is one working, one working, one doing the work, and soonergism or soon ergos or is or erga is two working together, two working together in sync, right? So we even where we get the word sync or synchronize. Same soonergism, uh, two working together, working in synchronous, right? Synchronized, working together, working in 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 uh, harmony with one another. So. Sanctification is the synergism between the Spirit of God and our own spirit. Not too difficult to understand. All right. Um, I've got a few minutes left to just kind of give you a take a bite out of Romans 8. We're not going to get through all of this. Um, this will be kind of a, an excursus, um, but I want to start down this path. And uh, we'll just take five minutes and um, begin to work through some of this. Uh, this One of these days, I'll just do an entire study. I may even take all of next week to, to continue what I call this kind of this mini study or a study within a study or an excursus to um, my commentary uh, on the Trinity. But because there's so many relevant spirit uh, um principles that are brought up in this passage. I wanted to take the time to mine this particular passage for all of the nuggets that are found here. So Paul starts off by saying there's no, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not too difficult to understand that, right? Um, he just got through talking about the condemnation that comes for those who are under the law and those who are uh, living without the knowledge that Jesus has set you free from that condemnation and slavery. Rome, go back and read Romans chapters um, 5, 6, and 7 in anticipation of Romans chapter 8, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And his conclusion in chapter 8, where he begins, is that there isn't any condemnation that the law would pronounce for unrepentant sinners, because we have been set free from that condemnation, not from the law, but free from the condemnation of the law, uh, because of uh, Messiah uh, being our substitute. He continues in verse 2, for the law of the Spirit. And that's why I want to talk, start talking about this and introduce it into this part of my commentary. This is a heavy spirit passage. The spirit of life, I think it's spirit uses like 21 times or something. I'll go back and count them again later on. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The spirit of life. Whose spirit is that? Is that God's spirit? Is it Christ's spirit? Is it the Holy Spirit? Again, the answer is yes. From a Trinitarian perspective, the answer is yes. From a Unitarian perspective, it's simply God's spirit, the law of the spirit of life. But Paul's going to, again, intertwine these concepts. Verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, he's talking about the Torah now, by the way, weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Remember, the Torah is a great tool. It's God's very document. It's perfect in its representation, in its delivery. However, Outside of the, the working of the Spirit, the, the Torah itself is weak. It cannot change the flesh. It cannot force the flesh to comply. It's weak in that regards. Um, the flesh itself is also weak. So there's a, a diabolical relationship between the weakness of the Torah and the weakness of the flesh working together. Go back and read the previous chapter. Paul wants to keep the Torah, but because of his flesh, he can't keep the Torah. That's why he says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing, right? Who's going to deliver him from this body of death? So the, the, the weakness of the flesh has the inability of, of keeping the Torah the way God wants it to be kept, 
and the weakness of the Torah has the inability of changing the heart of the individual outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. The Torah in and of itself isn't designed to function in that way. So God, in order to solve the problem of the, both the weakness of the Torah and the weakness of the flesh, did what Paul says? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Of course, sin is the violation of Torah commands. Um, and we're going to read about um, how uh, this action of God's helps us not only to fulfill the righteous requirement of the Torah, but also helps us to overcome the condemnation of sin in the flesh. Otherwise, without the Spirit's work, the Torah is a condemnation document. It's a document of death. It's a It has a ministry of death, and that's what Paul is going to go on to say in um, uh Second Corinthians chapter three, the Torah, the letter written on stone, is a ministry of death. The letters carved on stone are a ministry of death, and he even hints at that again. The the very commandment that I thought was supposed to bring life in the previous chapter, chapter seven, was actually found to be bringing death to me. Why? Because the Torah condemns sin. He continues in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but how? according to the Spirit. Notice in Paul's explanation, the Torah itself doesn't get removed from the equation. It's the condemnation of the Torah, the pronouncement against unrepentant sinners, and the stubborn uh, volition of the, of the flesh. That's the part that gets severed. We still end up with a struggle, like Paul talks about in Romans 7, where we have to uh, continually say no to the flesh until one day we put on this immortality, right? Um, mortality and immortality. Mortality will give way to immortality, and the flesh will give way to um, a, re- a, a resurrected body that can obey God fully and 100%. But in the meantime, what Yeshua did for us on the cross is he gave us the ability to obey God with the um, renewal of the Spirit. He gave us the ability to fulfill the righteous requirement that the Torah was um, asking of us all along in the spiritual sense of the word. Provided, right, there's a proviso here, the contingency in Paul's letter, and we'll read about this here in a second, is that we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And he's going to flesh it out here in the next next few verses. God gave us the ability to walk out the Torah by the power of the Spirit, but that doesn't mean that, like a robot, we're going to automatically do it. Because we still have the flesh housed up inside of us, even though there's been a, a, um, a, um, a separation on the inside, right? A division between the old man and the new man. The old man has been put to death, but there's still this remnant of the concept inside of us, um, the, the mindset, the old uh, habits, and what, it was, what one pastor say, our, our hang-ups, our hold-ups, our hang-ups, our hold-ups, our headaches, and our heartaches, right? All of those things kind of weigh us down from time to time as we try to walk out this um, sanctification in the power of the Spirit. What does Paul say? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. This verse could be talking about unbelievers, this verse could be talking about believers. Unbelievers who set their who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But that's also true of a sanctified believer as well. It's what I think Ryrie's old Bible used to call um, the um, carnal Christian. Something like that. I think it's Ryrie's Bible. Uh, it's one of those old um, King James uh, versions that I grew up reading. 
talked about the carnal Christian, right? The person who, who lives according to the flesh. And if you're a believer listening to this podcast or watching this YouTube video, then you know what I'm talking about as I'm drawing to a close in this part of, of Paul's letter since I'm running out of time. Even though you're a believer, you still make mistakes. You still decide to sin from time to time, even though it's not the thing you want to do. Why? It's because the flesh man, even though he's been, he, even though he has been put to death by the body of by by the body of Messiah, even though he's been put to death by the spirit of Messiah by by Christ's sacrifice, nevertheless the vestiges, the remnants of the old man are still floating around in your body. The uh, the memory of what it was like to live in sin is still there. Your mind still has this familiar um attachment to its old um bad habits and things like that and so it's easy uh, unless you maintenance yourself and make a, a habit uh it's easy to just slip back into the default sinful mindset that you used to walk in of course that's why there are commandments over and over again found throughout, throughout the new testament to live not according to the flesh but according to the spirit just like we're reading here and so we've got to like paul says live according to the spirit now this is something that you can't do unless you're a believer uh, because you don't have the spirit living in you. So um, those who live according to the flesh, you could be a believer or an unbeliever, but those who live according to the spirit are definitely believers, and they set their minds on the things of the spirit, but it is a conscious effort on your part. You've got to make the decision to do it. Paul continues in verse 6, For to set the mind on this flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. Right? He just gives us the consequences of the, uh, each of these choices that we make. And in verse 7, um, and I'll conclude with verse 7 and 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those, in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I'll stop there tonight. We'll flesh that out. We'll pick this up again next week and begin to exegete this kind of passage in Romans chapter 8 before we turn back into our Holy Spirit passages. But that'll do it now for um, exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to the liturgy real quick. We're going to borrow the same liturgy that we did um, before we went into the Passover season because we want to just add a bookend to the Passover season. I won't wax long. I'll just read the liturgy, and then we'll jump right into the video. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, starting over here on the left side of the page in the English. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Verse 3. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And verse 4. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Let's go back up and read the Hebrew of that same uh, section. Starting over here on the right side of the page in verse 1. The Hebrew says, Hadavar asher haya chaza, Yeshiyahu uh, ben Amoz al Yehuda vi Yerushalayim. Verse 2. Verse 2. 
בראש ההרים ונישא מגבעות ונהרו אליו כל הגויים. והלכו עמים רבים ואמרו לכו ונעלה אל הר אדוני אל בית אלוהי יעקב ויורנו מזרחי ונלכה באורחותיו כי מציון תצא תורה ודבר לאדוני מירושלים. ושפט בין הגויים והוכיח לעמים רבים וחיתתי חרבותם לעיתים וחניתותיהם למזמרות לא יישא גוי אל גוי חרב ולא ילמדו עוד מלחמה. Let's turn to the Apostolic Scriptures passage. Galatians chapter 2 verses... Uh, I want to jump down to verse 15 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Starting right there on the left side of the page. The ESV says, Galatians 2.15. This is Paul speaking to Peter. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 16. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, or by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, for I do not nullify the grace of God. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's go back up real quick and read the Greek, starting in verse 15, right over there. The Greek says, Hemes fusei, eudaioi kai uk ex ethnon hamartaloi. Verse 16, edates dehati u dekaiutai, anthropos ex ergo namu, ian me diapistios christu yesu, kai hemes eis christan yusan epistusimen. הנה דקאותומנק פיסטיוס כריסטו, קאי אוק אקס ארגונמו, האתי אקס ארגונמו או דקאותסדאי פסה סארקס. ורס 17. אי דזייטונטס דקאותנאי, אין כריסטו יואתמן. קאי אלטוי המרטלוי ארה כריסטס המרטיאס, דיאקנס מגנויטה. ורס 18. 
Christos ha de nun zo in sarki in piste zo te tu huio tu theutu aga pesantas me kai paradantas hautan huper emu. And the last verse, verse 21, uk atheto ten karintu theu e gardianamu dia dekayo sune ara Christos Dorian Apethenin. Let's turn to the short little video, and after the video, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright is Tate's Torah Ministries, 2015, all rights reserved. Okay, here's our question for tonight. What is the curse of the law? We know what the law is, but what is the curse of the law? Let's talk about that tonight. Galatians 3.10 reads, quote, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now, this verse, when misunderstood from its larger context, will invariably lead the reader to the incorrect conclusion that Shaul, Paul, is advocating complete and mitzvah by mitzvah, commandment by commandment, Torah submission for everyone wishing to attain right standing with the Almighty. But is that really what Paul means? Let's look at it. That the first century Judaism did not advocate a view that required complete Torah obedience before one could be counted as a covenant member is attested to in the later rabbinic compilations that survived the destruction of the temple. Put simply, no one in Paul's day thought that a person must practically walk out each and every single commandment in order to receive covenant membership into Israel, viz. salvation. That's the first challenge that I'm laying down tonight. Nor did anyone in Paul's day believe that God expected such obedience of Israel. It just wasn't there. So if it wasn't, what was? Our verse is actually a contrast to the previous statement made in verse 6 in Galatians, go back and read it, where Abraham is said to have been considered righteous on the basis of his faith. By comparison, those who do not imitate faith-filled and faithful Abraham, but instead seek to circumvent God's true method of declaring a person righteous, actually fall into the trap of being cursed by the very Torah they exalted in the first place. So, that's what we have going on. There's two methods, and that Paul's describing them. Such individuals, instead of living within the blessings of God, were in reality found to be the object of God's curse. Why? Because instead of submitting to God's way of making a person righteous through objective faith in Yeshua Jesus, they were said to be setting up their own way of righteousness through ethnic status slash Israelite membership. And it's a charge that's actually leveled against unbelieving Israel by Shaul himself in Romans 9, 31, 32, as well as Romans 10, 3. So Paul knows what their problem is, and he's getting to the heart of that. The phrase, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the laws, lifted from Deuteronomy 27:26, as indicated by the familiar, for it is written. The key to correctly understanding the verse, in my opinion, from Deuteronomy, and thus Paul's use of it here in Galatians, is in understanding that, quote, everything written in the book, end quote, also, and actually primarily, includes faith in Yeshua as the promised Messiah. Understand that. 
Yeshua is that uh, focus, for indeed Yeshua is the very conclusion. He's the very goal that everything written in the book is pointing to. Go back and read Romans 10 verse 4 and you'll see that Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the goal of the law. God's not asking his followers to try to keep every commandment in the law as some sort of simplistic grocery list of do's and don'ts in order to avoid being cursed. Paul sees another gospel being presented by his detractors, which is the gospel of Jewish identity and proselyte conversion for Gentiles. And he's out to set the record straight in this section of his letter by using Abraham as an example for both Jews and Gentiles. Let's look to Abraham. He's the model of our faith. Paul's going to prove his argument that genuine and lasting covenant membership is granted exclusively to those exercising objective faith in the promised Messiah of the law by directly quoting from the Torah itself. Yeah, isn't that cool? He doesn't have to make up his theology. It's already there for him right in the pages of God's word. The reference here by Shaul, however, is neither a direct quote from the Masoretic Hebrew text nor a direct quote from the Greek Septuagint LXX, like we discussed earlier. He may be paraphrasing the general meaning of the verses for his readers, which is okay. He may be quoting it from memory. We're not exactly sure, but he didn't uh, uh, change the meaning. The meaning is nevertheless captured by Paul. The genuine and lasting covenant member to be, as well as the existing covenant member, must follow after all that God has spoken to do, which includes, quote, listening to all the words of the prophet that God raised up among them, namely Yeshua. Go back and read Deuteronomy 18.15 where it references that prophet that God was going to raise up among them that the people were to listen to all his words. Picking and choosing which commandments are relevant and which ones aren't is not left to the covenant member. No cherry picking. Uh, uh, uh. Each and every covenant member bound himself to pursue the righteous one promised by the Torah, as already mentioned above. The very thing that a covenant member was expected to do was to exercise faith in God and in his Messiah to come, who, by Shaul's writing, had already arrived, right? Historically speaking, Yeshua had already come and gone. He was no longer to promise. In fact, that's what I say. The individual who failed to matriculate to the Messianic conclusion ultimately found himself a candidate for being cut off by God himself due to his lack of faith. Look, even my words are being cut in half. Yeah, oy vey. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for our study for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for the study. I thank you for the students. And as always, I thank you for the faithfulness of your spirit to reveal the words to us. We talk about um, understanding Matthew and the parables about the uh, the wine skins and the wine and the patches and the garments. And Lord, we don't quite understand what it is you're trying to teach us, but we know that the Holy Spirit will reveal these things to us if we are faithful to press in and wait on him to reveal them to us. Don't force uh, the issue. 
We need to continue reading the rest of the Word of God so we can get the context. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your words and sending us your Spirit so that He can remind us of your words and explain your words to us. Likewise, with the Trinity study, the exegeting, I'm sorry, the um, um, uh, this, uh, the uh, exploring the Shema study, Lord, I'm thankful that you reveal to us to you, uh, you reveal yourself to us in Trinity. We don't quite understand how that works in progressive fashion. It's confusing sometimes. It's challenging sometimes. But we trust in you, and we re- we trust that your words are reliable, and they're the final authority on the matter. So if that's who is revealed to us in the pages of your word, it doesn't matter what men's opinions are. It doesn't matter if it seems illogical. It doesn't matter if it seems incoherent. Um, uh, you are God. You are a, a, a complex unity, and we will... Um, recognize and worship you as Trinity because that's the way you reveal yourself in the pages of your word. So continue to bless us and challenge us and raise us up. Continue to heal us. Uh, Thank you, Lord, uh, for your healing, a a special prayer request of healing for those who couldn't make tonight because of sickness and illness, because of COVID and things like that. Raise us up and strengthen us so that we can continue to fellowship together and we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Amen. 